Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Richard, who's just about to enter the room, uh, is currently Senior Fellow in Economic Studies and Co-Director of the Centre on Children and Families at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., where his research focuses on social mobility, inequality, and family change. In September this year, influential magazine Politico named Richard one of the top 50 public thinkers in the U.S., Prior to joining Brookings in 2013, Richard was Director of Strategy to Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg in the Coalition Government here in the UK. Uh, Richard joins us back over this side of the pond again this evening to share some of the thinking from his latest book, Dream Hoarders, how the American upper middle class is leaving everyone else in the dust, why this is a problem, and what to do about it. In the book, Richard argues that although it's become conventional wisdom to focus on the excesses of the ultra-rich top 1%, and blame them for hoarding wealth. That's always nice to do, isn't it? Um, He says that more important uh, uh, is the issue that we need to address the widening gap in American society, and I'm sure he'll say the same about UK society to an extent, is not between the 1 and the 99, but unfortunately between the 20%, the upper middle class. Now, that's not quite so comfortable, is it, when uh, it's us that he's talking about. So, um, as his book suggests, he has some ideas which we're looking forward to hearing about, about how this is happening, why it's a problem, what might be done about it. After Richard's opening talk, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Faisal Shaheen, who is director of the think tank CLASS. Do you say CLASS? CLASS? I'm from London, so I say CLASS. CLASS. Everyone else on my team says it the northern way. Okay, that's up to you. You say CLASS, I say CLASS. The Centre for Labour and Social Studies, where she tackles some of our key social and economic challenges, including inequality, austerity, youth unemployment, and social mobility. So it will be fascinating to hear Faisal's reflections um, on Richard's uh, thesis. Then uh, we will discuss these ideas for a moment uh, uh, between us, and then we will open up the room uh, for questions from you. What lessons can we draw tonight um, from uh, Richard's work, both about the US, but also about uh, the UK? So, um, before we get started, please join me in welcoming Richard Reeves. Thank you, Matthew, for that very kind introduction. Thank you to all of you for uh, spending your Halloween evening, or at least part of it, with us here tonight. Um, And I'm very grateful that Matthew mentioned that I'd been named as one of the top 50 most influential thinkers in the US by Politico magazine. I must say that in previous years, I've always thought that was a stupid list. (laughs) Totally subjective, clickbait, without any real authority. But this year... (laughs) They really seem to me to have nailed it. Um, uh, and uh, as Matthew said, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about class and class and how do you say it. What a, what a great way to open it up because I actually tell a story in the book about my own journey from the UK class system to, or class system to the US one. And I tell the story about, about my mother uh, when we were growing up in Peterborough attending what Alistair Campbell beautifully described as a bog-standard comprehensive that one of my mother's main fears, having been very upwardly mobile herself, was that we would be hindered in our own upward mobility journey by the inability to speak properly and an inability to enunciate correctly and use the right accent and to be understood. She was terrified when we started dropping our T's, when we started adopting the kind of working class accent. And so she used to threaten us constantly with elocution lessons. We nicknamed them electrocution lessons (laughs) and said, Mum, she's threatening us with electrocution, electrocution again. Um, and the worst day was when I managed to pronounce the word computer without a T or a P. And so I need a new computer. I need a new computer. 
hard to do it now. The look on her, I think it's the closest she ever came to striking me when I was growing up, which was terrifying. Anyway, so uh, we were constantly told and, or how to use silverware and all that. She also forced us to learn to ballroom dance. So for uh, a miserable year of my adolescence, Saturday mornings were spent learning or attempting to learn how to waltz and cha-cha, etc. Um, uh, because my mother, again, was terrified that we'd be hired by some company and then we'd be going to some corporate event, we'd be asked to dance with the boss's wife or something, and our inability to know where to put our feet was going to prevent our upward escalation up the career ladder. Uh, my mother, who I think is watching, hi, Mum. <laughs> when I, I went home recently, denied that this had ever taken place. So I was forced to go into the, a box in the attic and find the certificates of all my ballroom dancing achievements. Samba level one, waltz level one, rumba level one, just level one, really broad. <laughs> the reason she did that was because she thought, look, we're in a, we're in a class-saturated society, both she and my father had, as I said, they've been very upwardly mobile. We're acutely conscious of how class operates, and it operates, to, the, to some extent, through the way you present yourself, the way you speak, you know, which fork you use, etc. or at least that's the fear in the UK. Uh, and I've always hated that about the UK. I've hated snobbery. I've also hated inverse snobbery. I've hated the way that class saturates so many of our interactions, the way that we're interacting with each other. Uh, and that's motivated some of my work around intergenerational mobility in the UK. Like going to the US, the idea there is that it's much more of a classless society. That we do, it's not as saturated in this sort of constant calibration of where do you stand on the pecking order. Less concerned about which fork you use. In fact, Americans only ever use a fork as it turns out. And it doesn't really seem to matter very much. And so, and although I wasn't naive, I knew some of the data, I nonetheless had a hope that it would be some, somewhat more of an open society in that sense. The book is in part the story of my disappointment. And it's in part the story of coming to believe that the US class system works as ruthlessly and as efficiently as the UK one I left behind in somewhat different ways, but it does so under a veneer of classlessness. It does so partly camouflaged by the myth of meritocracy, by the idea that, well, here in America, anyone can get ahead, etc. And there's a couple of reasons why class is not discussed in the same way in the US. The really good one is because race is so much more salient as a, a, a fracture in, in US society. The bad one is the one I've alluded to, which is a kind of sense where we we're, we're a classless society. 90% of Americans define themselves as a middle class and pretty much always have. That's a very, very large middle. Uh, and, of course, there's a bit of a linguistic difference here, too, between the way middle class is used in the two countries. So um, I've been working at Brookings on intergenerational mobility and on you know, the perpetuation of poverty and so on. And I became increasingly interested in the perpetuation of affluence in the stickiness at the top of the distribution. And then there was a moment which occurred in January of 2015, which, which really was what prompted me to write the book. So the short answer to this, for those who want to go trick-or-treating, is who's destroying America? The answer is I am or at least the class of which I am now a member is. The American upper middle class are destroying the American dream whilst telling themselves that they are living it out and they're living proof of it. So I'm going to do this very briefly because I, uh, I am not going to go over time. Just go through my argument so you just get a sense of what it is that I'm saying in the book. Uh, oh, there's all these things that we can use to do on social media, which I've put up. There you go. Uh, this... There's a couple of younger people in the audience, so just in case, this is the 44th president <laughs> of the United States of America, Barack Obama. And doesn't it feel like a long time ago? <laughs> uh, he suffered uh, a small but painfully humiliating uh, political defeat in January of 2015 when he became the first president in living memory 
to ask his own party to vote against one of his own proposals in his budget, even before it got to Congress. And it was a bit of a light bulb moment for you. So I'm just going to tell the story of what happened and how we came under pressure to reverse this particular policy and how it leads me into my analysis of class in the US. So he's flying on Air Force One. He's flying from India to Saudi Arabia just after they published the budget a few days later. And there's a storm brewing in US politics about his budget proposal. Bear in mind, this was a budget that was not going to pass without control of the Houses of Congress, the budget is, is really a political signaling exercise. But nonetheless, there was a huge row going on. And one of the people involved in this is Nancy Pelosi, who is still the minority leader for the Democrats in the House. She uh, had ta taken a phone call that day. She'd taken a phone call from this man, Chris Van Hollen, at the time my congressman, now the junior senator for Maryland. And he called Nancy and he said, we have got to get rid of this thing. My inbox, my mailbox is going crazy. My constituents are going crazy. Now, both Pelosi and Van Hollen, I think, would describe themselves as to the, uh, the left side of the Democratic Party. They're certainly not sort of in the middle. They'd probably see themselves as pretty liberal Democrats, to use that phrase in the uh, US sense rather than the UK one. And yet they were the ones who were leading the charge against this tax plan. So you might think that this must have been some horrible giveaway to the rich that they were protesting about. Anyway, so he's call he calls Nancy. She takes the call, and she says, actually, I'm on Air Force One. She happens to be traveling with the president when she takes this call. She says, I can go and talk to him. She's going to walk down the plane and knock on his door. The president is in his office in Air Force One. A knock comes at the door. I don't, I'm, based on real events, whatever they say in Hollywood. <laughs> Hi, come in. Who is it? It's Nancy. Come in, Nancy. What's up? Well, it's this tax plan. It has to go. It's killing us. You've got to get rid of it. So the president says, all right, I'll consult with some senior advisor. <laughs> Think about it. Decide what to do. Goes back to his office, calls the White House, and says, hello, White House. It's the president. Or whatever. I don't know how it works. But this idea has got to go. And sure enough, the very next day, his spokesman kills the plan with the wonderful political word, distraction. The get out of jail card word for all politicians are trying to get. And this was to end something called 529 tax benefits. These are tax subsidized college savings plans, which only benefit affluent people. It was Bush that brought through the tax cut. Clinton had vetoed it the previous year. And they were fighting him. His left wing of his own party were fighting him to keep it. If you look at the distribution from the poorest people over here, to the richest on the right. This is quartiles now, just exact, exact 25%. Uh, and show on the left-hand side, this is how many of those people in that household have got it. And then on the right hand, of those who've got one, what's the average balance in this 529 savings plan? You can see that it's heavily skewed to the right. That makes sense, because one of the main benefits is it's capital gains tax-free, and you don't pay that until your income reaches a certain level in the US. But it also makes sense, because only people with money can save money. Most states also give an income tax deduction on it. So I live in Maryland. My wife and I can put $10,000 a year against our Maryland income tax so long as we put it into a 529 college savings plan. That saves us about $600 a year. In New York, you can do it, and you only have to leave the money in for five days. Put it in for five days, claim the tax break, take the money out again. You don't even need to leave it in there. Uh, it's exempt from gift tax, which means you can put as much as you want in in any particular year without falling prey of what otherwise would be gift tax rule. The Obamas themselves put a quarter of a million dollars in one year for their own two daughters. Right. 
So it's a very, very, very regressive tax break. And the plan was to get rid of it going forward and to replace it with a much more progressive plan of tax credit. That was the idea. But it blew up from people like Pelosi and Van Holland. These are the median incomes of uh, Pelosi's county, Van Holland's county, and the national median income. These are the medians. Uh, they represent affluent districts, highly educated districts. Where I live, there are more PhDs, I think, than anywhere else in the US. These are affluent, highly educated liberals, very liberal, but by God, you couldn't go after their 529 plan. It blew up. And Paul Walden from the Post said this, it angered the upper middle class, wealthy enough to have influence and numerous enough to be a significant voting block. Not just they have money, of course, the 1% have money and the 0.1% have money. There's a lot of them. And essentially, they run everything. Everything, every newspaper, every academic is a member of this upper middle class. Even though, so basically, what he's trying to do is take some money off a very powerful group of liberals. That was the moment that I decided to work on it. This shows you now the value of tax breaks, tax expenditures for the bottom 40, middle 40, and top 20. I won't go into detail. But basically, what it shows you is that the tax breaks in the US are highly regressive, and particularly because of mortgage interest and capital gains deductions. But the American upper middle class know how to take care of themselves. That was my big lesson. So I wrote this book, which is on sale afterwards, I think. Is it? Yes. It's also an audio book for those who want to do it. I read it myself, but I had to audition for the part of myself. And I only just got it. This is broadly my argument. I'm going to, have to, I'm going to rattle through it pretty quickly. Um, and some of it will engage a little bit with work that Matthew and others have done around relative and absolute mobility. But this is, this, this is the essence of it. The American upper middle class, and I would say the trends are similar in other countries, if not quite as acute, is separating. That inequality is not just in one moment in time, but it's intergenerational. It is passed on. Class perpetuates. That's when it becomes class. That's when, it becomes, that's when inequality becomes stratification. I'm going to briefly talk about, very briefly talk about the difference between relative and absolute mobility, which is important to my argument. I'm going to argue for downward mobility, which turns out to be a spectacularly unappealing idea to everybody, including my wife, when it, when it comes to your own children, that is. There's no regression to the mean, is there, when it comes to our own children? They're all brilliant. And they should all do at least as well as us, if, if not better. And then I'm going to say why that happens. Partly through the way that the market rewards certain skills which are massively developed among those who are fortunate enough to be born at the top. So the market just does its thing and rewards merit. And the second is to what I call opportunity hoarding. I'm going to only solve it if we can persuade a broader swathe of people that they are, in fact, rich. OK, I'm going to do it quickly. This is the we are the 1% chart. So if you're Occupy Wall Street, you know the we are the 99% thing versus the 1%, one of the least helpful political slogans, I think. But this is the kind of chart they might produce. This is real incomes for different groups from 79 through to 2011. For the top 1% and the top, the 19% below them here, and then the middle 40 and the bottom 40. Sure enough, look at that top 1%. There's a couple of things about that. One is that actually there's a lot of movement in and out of the top 1%. In the US, to get to the top 1%, you need a household income of just north of $400,000 a year. To get into the top fifth, you need an income of about $130,000 a year. These are household incomes. But there's actually quite a bit of movement between them, because if you have suddenly get two earners, that's, quite, that's enough to push some people in good labor markets into the top 1%. So in a 10-year spell, about uh, two, uh, two in 10 of this group will be in and out. The second thing is, look at the left-hand scale. In order to capture the incomes of the top 1%, you have to really push up the left-hand scale. Social scientists do their dirty work in two places, one in the footnotes, with what deflator they've used or what assumptions they've made, and secondly, in the left-hand scale. You can basically show anything if you just change the left-hand scale. So I'm about to do it too. I'm going to change the left-hand scale. 
Now it only goes for 200,000. And I've taken the top 1% out altogether. They don't appear in this chart. So it's the bottom 40, the next 40, and then the 19% above them, but not including the top 1%. Now, it's not as dramatic a chart. It can't be because of what we've done with the scale. But it is important to note that there's been no increase in income inequality in the bottom 80% of the US distribution. The bottom of the US distribution looks exactly the same today as it did in 1979. It's moved up a little bit, not much, but it looks exactly the same. No increase in inequality at all. So don't let people say, at least in the US context, there's a growing gap between rich and poor. That's not true. There's a growing gap between rich, however you define it, and everybody else. The bottom 80% are effectively being left behind. And then to a greater extent needs to go up towards the top, people are pulling away. So this is the pulling away the top 19%. This is just income, but a class isn't just made by income. And so I would also add what's happened to education, what's happening to family structure, what's happening to neighborhood segregation, what's happening to health, life expectancy gaps are growing, et cetera. But I won't get into those here. The second thing is that it endures across generations. I'm going to introduce you to something that we make up Brookings all the time, which is an income, intergenerational income transition matrix. We make them all the time. We have great, our days just fly by at Brookings, as you can imagine. <laughs> the poorest kids over here, the richest kids over here. It's actually chatty data. And basically, it shows us quite a bit of mobility. It's like this is telling you that this is how many of the kids born poor stay poor as adults in the bottom 20%. Uh, actually, if you do it for, for black and white or people from different family structures, it's very different. Plus, there's a lot of people in the US, 300 million. It's quite hard to interpret these sorts of charts. But my point here is simply that everyone always focuses on this, the perpetuation of poverty. Why are so many people stuck in poverty? But if it's relative, if it is a zero-sum game, let's just have a look at that as well. Just have a look. It might be that we look at it and go, no problem here. But let's at least look. People seem reluctant to even look at that. What's happening at the top? Is it that they're just so much better that they deserve to stay at the top? Or is there something else going on that we might have a problem with? We might not. I'm um, just put up wealth for the sake of it, just to show that wealth, as you'd expect, is even stickier. So 44% of those who have parents in the top fifth will be in the top fifth of wealth themselves. I'll show education in a moment. I'm going to say a bit about this distinction between relative and absolute mobility. Absolute mobility is being better off than your parents were at the same age. You get to 40, are you better off in real terms than your parents were at 40? You hope so if there's any economic growth that's in any way shared. Broadly, that's what you'd hope for. Relative mobility is the kind I just showed you. It's necessarily a zero-sum game. And every politician that you ever speak to, where you show them a chart like this, they'll go, we've got to get more people rising up the income ladder. They say, that's great, but you, don't, you know we'll have to move some people down. And they go, what? Say that again? Oh, no, 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 no I don't do that. I just want to move people up. Okay. But relatively speaking, you can't. Now, that's not a moral statement. That's a mathematical statement. So at least be, let's at least be clear what we're talking about. This is uh, tax data collected by Raj Chetty, who's the, easily the leader in the field of intergenerational mobility because he has everyone's tax records, which he's brilliantly using in the, in the US, anonymized, of course. Um, and he's showing here, depending on what year you're born in, how many, what percentage of people are better off than their parents were at the same age. And so for the post-war generation, pretty much everyone was, 90% were. It's dropped to 50% now. Now, when your economy is growing at 4% a year, as it was between 1950 and 1974, you'd expect people to be getting better off. Plus, you've got to think about how, how terrible their parents' lives were. It's always backward looking. But nonetheless, the trend is very clear that uh, lower growth and higher inequality means that you've now got only about a 50% chance, if you're born in 1980, of being better off than your parents. That's low absolute mobility, falling absolute mobility. People feel that in some ways. 
Why is that happening? And again, what they did was something quite clever. Actually, this would say these are the first, these two num these two bars are these two. Uh, it's just showing you that and that, the beginning and the end of this line, basically. So 40 years ago, 90% of people were better off than their parents. It's now 50%. And then what they do is they model what would the mobility today, absolute mobility, be today if we had the same growth, if we'd had the same growth as we enjoyed in those years before, and what would it be? Hold, but holding, holding inequality constant. And then this one on the far right is, imagine if we had the same levels of equality, same distribution, but we still had low growth. The bottom line of this chart is that it's a combination of lower growth and less even distribution of the proceeds of that growth that has led to lower absolute mobility. But it's actually more about inequality than low growth, about two-thirds of it. So this issue of relative and absolute mobility has troubled me for quite a while. And there are many people who would argue that the focus on relative mobility is fool, foolhardy because you don't want to create losers. And it's politically difficult. The way that I think about it now, this is from a friend of mine, Steve Perlstein. He said, think about an era of high growth and high absolute mobility. It's driving along a road and everyone's doing fine. You're all driving along at 65. Someone overtakes you. Do you mind? Not really, unless you, unless you have deeper problems than I can deal with here. There are always a few. But in, in principle, anyway, I bet you wouldn't mind. You're driving at the speed, you know, just whatever, right? You're driving at 60, something, you don't mind. We're all getting there at a decent pace. So in an era of high absolute mobility and growth, there may be a bit of relative position change. Someone overtaking you or overtaking your kids doesn't feel so painful. But in an era of low growth, low absolute mobility, where everything feels more congested, everything feels tighter, the stakes feel higher. And then you really do mind if someone manages to get in front of you. Because suddenly the stakes feel higher. And so ironically, a period of kind of lower growth, lower absolute mobility, means that relative mobility, the positional status, is probably, in my view, both more important but also more difficult. Because the stakes just got higher. So I'm now briefly going to make a case for downward mobility. I've, simply, I've made it already. Mathematically, if you want more upward relative mobility, you need more downward. That's just a fact. If we, don't, if we don't want more of the former, let's at least be honest, let's at least be honest about that. Um, my view is that actually the circulation of our elites, the movement both up and down, are both important in an open society. I don't think you want a society where you've got, say, quite a bit of mobility in the bottom 60 or 80%, but the elite is managing to perpetuate itself pretty well. I don't think we'd feel good about that. So downward mobility, relatively speaking, is important. We do not want the sons and daughters of today's upper middle class to semi-automatically become tomorrow's upper middle class. We don't. We do if we are those members of the upper middle class. And that's fine. Individually, our incentives might be that way. But we don't want a society like that. So actually, what some psychologists did was they asked a bunch of Americans, they split them into liberals and conservatives, what kind of mobility do you want to see? And they asked them, what should be the mobility from the bottom 20%? They asked liberals, conservatives, and then compared to the actual mobility. Slightly different to the earlier figures I showed you. So basically, what people want is massive upward mobility. They don't want any relationship at all between where you come from and where you end up. If you're born poor, that's the American dream. Isn't that great? They're all kind of shooting up the distribution. Then they did something clever. They said, OK, what about the people born at the top? How much mobility do you want for the people at the top? And not so much. Same data. So people are very strongly in favor of upward, absolute, upward relative mobility and very strongly against the idea of downward relative mobility. That's human nature. It makes sense. But it is mathematically impossible. Can't do it. So something has to give. Now, I'm virtually out of time. So just be very quick with these. My essential argument is there are two ways that we see this perpetuation of class status. One, through the greater accumulation of human capital and education for those who are able to buy it, who are those at the top. Their kids do well in the labor market because their kids are good. 
They're, they're, by the time they hit the labor market, they're pretty well trained, they're pretty well educated. And even if they're not that smart, even if they're Tim nice but dim, to use that lovely, is it Harry Enfield? Yeah. That lovely Harry. Even if by the time the employer finds out, it'll be too late. They're so dressed up in cultural capital uh, that they can actually outperform themselves in the labor market. But by and large, it's just because those kids do get a really good education. So if they start behind, they catch up. And the second is cheating, opportunity hoarding, which is where we cheat our way. Um, I, I usually do a whole thing where I have to explain this to a US audience, that it was a dystopia, that he was a warning, and what he said in it, and all of that. But I don't think I need to do as much of this in this audience, just to remind us that he did use meritocracy as a bad thing and as a warning. And actually, his biggest warning was that if you, if you convince yourself you're a meritocracy, you'll inevitably become more unequal, because the winners will feel their, winning, their winnings are justified on the grounds of their own merit. He also said there'll be a, a corrosion of respect between the winners and the losers, because the winners will feel pretty great about themselves, and the losers will feel terrible. Because in a meritocracy, it can only be your fault. There'll be something wrong with you. So just a reminder, that's what he meant. This is educational um, status, just to, if you remember what these were before, just again, focus on the right-hand side. Top quintile educational status, 46% of those with parents in the top 20% of the educational distribution end up there themselves. So education is inherited even more strongly than income or wealth. Partly because it's very important. Now this is, I'll, do only do, I'll probably do one chart from the US. This is your parents rank on the income distribution, poorest to richest, and how many of you, what percentage chance you're in college between the ages of 18 to 21. You know how sometimes social scientists put up scatter plots and then put a line of best fit through it and you're a little bit like, eh, really? You don't really need a line of best fit here, do you? That's, that, I'm pretty sure, is a strong correlation. In fact, you can see it. You can see the slope over there, the regression, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's actually terrifying. I'll skip that one, because that just shows how the more elite the college, the more class-bound they are. The last thing I want to say about is opportunity hoarding. This is where people have take, stolen the term from Charles Tilley, where those of us who are able to do so, we actually hoard valuable opportunities in a way that's unfair, that's anti-competitive. Um, and I have three examples. I'll only talk very briefly about one. I think some apply in the UK and some don't. Um, exclusionary zoning, in other words, using house regulation. Uh, planning permission to zone out people uh, from areas of opportunity and artificially protect the value of your own house. Uh, secondly, legacy admissions. Uh, and thirdly, internships. And I'm only going to say, I'm only going to do the first. This is US data again. This is what's happened to, this is on a, a uh, base scale of 100. The uh, blue line is average household income. The red line is average rents. It's getting much more expensive. Why? This is a chart from 1940 showing the number of court cases that involves something to do with uh, land use regulation. The US has become incredibly regulated, you know, far from the frontier in the west and an acre for everything. Uh, large cities, in particular in areas of high growth now, are thickly, thickly regulated in terms of planning permissions and zonings in the US, and that's become a huge problem. One example only, Los Angeles in 1960 was zoned to hold 10 million people. At the time, it had 2.5 in it. More recently, the zoning has come down to the level that's currently there. We were right in 1960, Los Angeles is easily big enough for 10 million people, but what's happened is that neighborhoods and local localities have shrunk the zoning to fit the current number of people living there through density zoning, etc. The result is expensive land and expensive housing, and one consequence of that is a massive drop in geographical mobility in the US. The number of people moving across state lines has halved in the last 10, 15 years, and it's especially true for lower skilled workers. So the whole idea of the, you just move has become much harder because it's real expensive in the places where the jobs are. Legacy admissions, I'm just going to put up again in bold again. I'm not going to go into that here. 
but I, I tend to with US audiences because really it's the only country in the world that still has hereditary uh, principle in operation in college admissions. It wiped it out here in the middle of the 20th century. Um, you know, I, I like to say that even our royal family don't go to Oxford and Cambridge now. You know, they can't get in. Um, so they go, where do they go? St. Andrews now? Which has been amazing for St. Andrews because all the Americans now want to go to St. Andrews. So they're, they're, apparently their budget's fantastic. Uh, and then in, internships. Internships have become quite important uh, in the labor market. Uh, so the way that they're allocated, fairly or unfairly, becomes quite important. I'm just going to skip over this very quickly, which is to say that one of the problems that I identify in the book is that people define rich according to where they are on the distribution. It's a hard chart to interpret, but broadly what it's saying is that if you're relatively poor, you don't think you need that much money to be rich, but if, you go, if you're relatively rich, you think you need a lot. People who, are, who have at least 100,000 coming in think you need 500,000 to be rich. And we all do that. We just move our relative benchmark up. The problem is the more inequality grows, the more our reference point moves as well. And the more segregated we become occupationally and socially and educationally, the harder it is to actually find the true reference point. You live in an expensive neighborhood and send your kids to an expensive school and then an expensive college, your reference point is going to be people who are even richer than you. And so the worse inequality gets, the worse the reference point bias gets too. So that's a real problem. And I end the book by arguing for a change in spirit, change in consciousness, a change in what uh, Jerry Cohen in his wonderful book, If You're an Egalitarian, How Come You're So Rich, which is a great book with a great title, um, that social change will come about not only as a result of structures and policies, but a change in what he called the thick of everyday life. The thick of everyday life. And what Hofstadter said about the progressive era in the US was that it, was, it wasn't just against others. This wasn't a, ah, the top 1% or the poor. It was partly directed inward. And that those who spoke of it as an affair of the conscience were not mistaken. My own view, and this is, I think, as true of other countries of the US, but especially the US is, we have good policy ideas, and I haven't gone into those here tonight. We don't lack for policies. What we lack for is a political culture that allows you to actually implement those policies, witness the 529, or the ridiculous mortgage interest deduction, or other examples you can think of here. We lack a culture. And that has to be a culture of, of, of a degree of being aware of our own privilege, aware of the operation of a class system, and a willingness to give something up. Unless we do that, we're in trouble. Thank you for that. And I really welcome this book. So, I mean, I feel like everyone starts with personal stories, but maybe I'll get to mine in a bit. But essentially, I feel like for a long time, this whole conversation about social mobility has been about blaming those at the bottom and just pull your socks up and work harder. So, you know, really glad to see a book that actually calls out the middle class and says that there is some of that um, gaming of the system that is happening. Um, I, this really struck me when, uh, during the election, when the Labour manifesto said that um, they wanted to tax the top 5% more. So those are earning over 80,000, which I thought sounded fair enough. And I thought, I don't really know anyone that earns that much money. Uh, even me as a director of a small think tank, I don't earn that much money. And then a few friends started acting quite strangely about it. And I realized that they were over 80 grand a year. And a couple of them were honest enough to say, but I don't feel rich. And you know, in London, that's not a lot of money. And I had to keep saying, but you, do you understand that you are in the top 5% of earners? That's still a lot more money than other people have in this country. Um, but it was just really interesting how no one thinks that they are in that group. Um, and even if they 
economically, income-wise, they are in that group. They still think they are an, the exception because of their housing costs, etc. But everyone's in the same boat. Everyone else has housing costs as well. Um, and it's also not just at the individual level that sometimes you know we find ourselves as I'm the middle class now, like gaming the system. It's at the, big, it's at the biggest scale as well. And I think sometimes we forget the way in which the, who sets the rules of this country. Who decided where austerity uh, would hit? Who decided that um, the poorest, uh, and in particular women of color, would be most affected? That was the middle class that made those decisions. They are the decision makers in so many of our sectors. So at that bigger scale as well, we are seeing, you know, too often the middle class that often like to distance themselves from a kind of 1%, either executing some of those decisions that are made or, you know, perpetuating them themselves. And I think we have to understand that that happens in a, at an institutional level too. It's not just an individual thing. There's many ways in which I think the UK is similar to the US in terms of this story. I mean, we have this really caricature sense of class, right? And I know Americans often kind of find it like cute. They're kind of fascinated by it, like, ooh, Italians and <laughs> Downton Abbey. I mean, they're obsessed with it. Um, the number of conversations I've got into where, you know, where they want to talk about it, like they're really excited about it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm not the right person. I'm not going to get excited about that with you. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think... We ha also, you know, we have the, Clar well, the Clarendon schools, we have Eton and et cetera, and that makes it much clearer. And we see those people, there was a new study this week on who's who, um, you know, those people that go to those schools, like, often end up in those top positions, regardless even at the university that they go to, or if they go to university, they will still end up in those positions because of the name and the networks of those schools. And we'll hear these... Uh, these stats year after year, which I've got kind of frustrated by, which is, you know, 7% um, uh, go to private school, 74% of our top judges are privately educated, 51% uh, of our leading print journalists, which actually has gone up in recent years, 32% uh, of our MPs, 50% of the Conservative Party. Um, and I think it's important to say those stats and remember that, and that, that lack of representation that we have of people that, didn't, that just didn't go to private school in a number of our key sectors. But I guess where I depart on some of this analysis is that I just have an actual problem with the whole narrative of social mobility and meritocracy. Um, actually, do we want a kind of system? We have this marker of our society that what makes us so great is if people can move from the bottom to the top. That is like an ultimate marker of success. And what does that mean? What does that implicitly say? Doesn't that say it's somehow a bad thing to be working class? Doesn't that say that um, that that is that is always, it doesn't matter what you're leaving behind. It doesn't matter if they're poor at the bottom. As long as we people have made it, then our society is great. Um, and also, I mean, Rich's numbers just there reminded us the absurdity of that. It actually doesn't work. Like we can't have a society whereby everyone's striving to get to the top. Some people will not get there. Um, and so for me, it's really about what it is, you take this analysis and you think about what's the ideal here? What are we actually aiming for? Are we aiming for one, to teach poor kids how to game the system too? Is that what we're trying to do? Is this a kind of, as long as we get some poor kids and some people of color into Oxbridge, then again, that's, is, that, is that the aim? Is that the, is that the ultimate sign of success? Is it that we stop the middle class from gaming the system? And, you know, I kind of think it's unlikely that that's gonna happen. Like, I mean, why would, people undermine the position of their own children. Uh, and we see the way in which people, you know, 
sign up for schools before the kids are even born and move neighborhoods and change their postcodes to get into the right school. It's like, it, it's almost like a natural thing that people have that they want to get their kids into good schools. I mean, I don't think we should, I want them to check their privilege and I you know, but at the same time, it's like, is that really going to fix it? And I think it's very unlikely to happen. Power is often not given, right? It's taken. And I think that we are being, um, uh, yeah, naive if we think that that is going to solve it. And, and, or is it to really dismiss this idea of merit meritocracy, which as you say, was ultimately kind of a joke and kind of a warning to us. Um, and to think about a system where whatever happens, wherever you end up, you have a secure life. Your kids can have a good life. They can do whatever job they want to do and they have, you know, they have opportunities. But ultimately, getting those jobs doesn't mean that you're going to spend, you know, isn't the difference between spending your whole life poor and, and, and getting out of that situation and, and leaving those people behind in that real sense of leaving people behind, of, of a very, very different type of life. And when we had that time when it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't a bad thing to be working class. It shouldn't be a bad thing to be working class. Um, and when the working class were listened to and they had that security of incomes, they also had more power. Um, and so when we think about what we do going forwards, we have to think about structure. We have to think about voice. We have to think about you know, what it means for everyone to have a good life, regardless of where you end up. Um, so in terms of policy, and I was like a little bit, if I can be so bold, a bit, when I got to the policy section of the book, I was, I, I was a bit shocked to see that number one on the list is um, changing our approach on contraception. And number two is home visiting to improve parenting. For me, that is, goes back to some of the individualizing the problem. Um, and for me, it's not the things that I would put on my list. So for me, the top three things, if I may, um, is one, just tackle income and wealth inequality. And I know that was a bit about what Barack Obama was doing there. Um, but look, it's in more equal countries, you have more social mobility. Simple as, when you have the rungs of those ladders that are much wider apart, it's harder to climb. And um, you know, we've got to do something about uh, housing wealth in this country, right? The, the growth in difference between the haves and have-nots. We've got to do something about the way in which the labor market is polarizing between low-waged, insecure jobs and high-wage jobs and that middle that is falling out in the labor market. We have to think about this as a structural economic problem, not just simply as a matter of a few tinkering of social, social, um, social policies. We can't have a situation where in this new tech age, the winner takes all of the gains and all of the profits. You know, we have to think about who owns the robots in this new, in this new world. Um, ultimately, I don't think we can have more social, social mobility when the 1% owns as much as the bottom 50%. I just, uh, overcoming those massive differences in income and wealth, uh, that has to be the starting point for me. And, and you may say that this very, the, the upper middle class are you know, very well placed to make sure the political system works for them or the top 1%, the top 5%. We have to remember there's more of us than them or there's more of the 95%, I mean, and really, this isn't about, you spoke about culture, it's about the lack of leadership we've had, the lack of solidarity in grassroots building, movement building that we've had to remind the leaders that their majority will gain from these types of policy changes. And I'm pleased to see that in the UK, at least, um, we are seeing that pushback in a very real, a real sense. The second thing is end austerity. This has been one of the biggest lies that we have been ever told about the necessity 
of having austerity, um, public spending cuts have really undermine the welfare net in this country. For many years, we had a very similar situation in terms of this, what was happening into inequality. We had the 1% getting a lot richer and the 99% of us basically becoming more equal. In the last few years, and we've seen this, seen this in food bank usage, we've seen this in homelessness, we're seeing that bottom really be affected now. I am the, I am the, I'm the daughter of a car mechanic. The reason that I am where I am is because of the public sector, because of schools, because of inspiring teachers, because of the way in which the public sector worked for me. And we have to make sure, we have to make sure that that is there um, and that has been seriously undermined right now. Um, thirdly, and I, I could go on, but I'm just gonna stick with three, um, is that we cannot shy away from some of these blunt tools that we need um, in terms of quotas. I was never really into quotas before, but I've kind of been brought round because I was doing this bit of research on um, pipelines in terms of when are we going to see the first black Supreme Court judge? When are we going to see the back, uh, first black leader of a political party? When are we going to see the first um, black James Bond? Um, and uh, Idris all the way. Okay. But, um, but the thing is, is when I was doing this data and looking at these pipelines of, you know, who's next up, when are we going to see these people, um, often we take judges, for instance. I had to go five levels down before I found one black member, right? And so that's like, that's not probably going to happen in my lifetime. If you take other sectors um, like journalism, print journalism, they didn't even have the data. They didn't even have the data to give to me about where, when are we going to see the next black editor of you know, a leading print paper. They didn't even have the data where I could like work it out. Um, and I think, I think the thing about quotas that I, I so let me just link this back, um, is actually politics actually gave me a little bit of hope, which is still underrepresented. We're still underrepresented. Working class, people of color, still underrepresented. Um, privately educated, people still overrepresented. But what we've seen in recent years is a very clear increase in the number of people of color in particular. Now, I, that doesn't break it down by what school they went to and that is an issue, but we have seen, you know, we went from like a tiny, like four or five black MPs to a situation where we've got 17, 18 now. Um, and, and that happened not because people stood down in areas and said, oh, we should let other people, this is not representative, we should let other people go forward. It happened because even the conservatives started putting black uh, MPs in safe areas so they would get elected. You have to be hardcore about this. There's no, there's no waiting for it to happen. You have to step in. And it's certainly true for all women shortlists as well, for instance, that actually you have to make it happen because it won't just happen by itself. People don't want to just give up their power and their privilege. Um, so I think, you know, I think there's definitely something to be learned from that. And so when I was looking at the numbers, we're much more likely to have a, a black leader of a political party than you know, a, a, a black judge at the top or uh, et cetera, because of that very um, interventionist approach. Um, and I think there's definitely something to be learned from that. So I'll leave it there, thank you. I don't know about dream hoarders, but certainly between you, you've been time hoarders because we've got uh, <laughs> seven minutes left for what should have been a 30 minute conversation. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you one really simple question so that we can just get at least one rounding because unfortunately I would like to let it go on, but I've got to go and speak to some MPs. Um, uh, 
you can talk about these issues through three narratives. So you can talk about them through the narrative of social mobility, and I share many of your concerns about social mobility, and you know, as Richard knows, I've got many worries about it as an, as an idea. Not least the fact that it's just a mechanism, you know, in, you know the, the core idea, let's take the most brightest, the brightest and most talented people out of poor areas. That's not great for poor areas, to be honest. So, you know, there's all sorts of problems with it, all sorts of problems. But anyway, the other one is inequality, which is what you focused on. Metrics of inequality, you know, the, the, um, the that's the thing. What's it called? The squared, thingy squared. Uh, the inequality measure. Gini coefficient. But there's a third, and I've got, what, what I find problematic about that is that it's, it's complex and it's in some ways kind of counterintuitive. So inequality has actually fallen in the last 10 years. It's not fallen because of policy. It's not fallen because of austerity. It's fallen because when you have austerity, it's harder for very rich people to get much richer. So, you know, sometimes inequality is affected and rises and falls due to kind of random kind of things. Yeah? Wealth inequality hasn't, but income inequality has. And actually, bizarrely, at the moment, Incomes are rising fastest proportionately amongst the lowest paid in Britain as a consequence of the living wage and the tightness of the labour market. You know, so that's not policy, that's just the way the economy is. The third way of looking at this is, is poverty reduction, which is simply to say nobody should be poorer than this. And we will decide what this is, and we're going to say no citizen should be below this level in this country, and then let's aim for no one to be below that level anywhere. Right? And you know, after a lot of reflection, a lot of thinking... I have ended up thinking the third is the most powerful narrative. I've ended up thinking that's the narrative that mobilizes the most people, that's the narrative where the policy interventions are clearest, where I feel that you can make an argument, a hum humanitarian argument, a humane argument, ethical argument, without having to have barrel loads of statistics and complications. And Am I wrong? Uh, yeah, but as you say, <laughs> but as you say, we don't have very much time. Um, well, it's not, it's not a position I've always had. Specifically on the poverty point. Yeah. So I think it's, it's perfectly consistent to say that there should be a floor below which we shouldn't allow people to fall. I also agree that public goods uh, lower the stakes around some of the kinds of inequality debates we're having. One of the reasons I'm strongly in favor of better health care provision, for example, is so that people are less terrified of the idea of downward mobility. Right? So I agree with all that. The problem, as you know, it depends how you measure poverty. Uh, the, temptation is all, the temptation then is always just to make sure that poor people are less poor than they are now. Good. Don't get me wrong. That's good. But if they're only slightly less poor and they stay poor, and most importantly, their kids end up with very high chances of poverty as well by comparison to everyone else, I do not consider that the same social democratic utopia that, that my opponents seem to think. It's perfectly possible to want more equality, more provision of public goods, less poverty, but also in a different way to see that a socially just society isn't just those things, but is also one with a weaker association between where you come from and where you end up. They're perfectly consistent. I, I agree. My question is, what is the narrative that is the most likely narrative to make, make progress? Well, uh, that yeah. might be different in the UK. I think that might be different in the US and the UK. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean I think that... There's been some mileage in some of the... It's taken a long time. So I've been working on inequality for more than 10 years, and when I started working on it, people said to me, Pfizer, no, before the crash, Pfizer, no one cares about inequality. It's poverty or growth. Like, it's just because you're a nice person. Don't worry about uh, That's just not the case, because um, 
that ignores, when you just focus on poverty, that ignores issues of power and that conveniently makes it no one's fault. It sort of says like, oh, well, we don't have to change anything up here. And actually, I think that's like a really important part of your book. It sort of says that no one else has to change anything. We just need to give these people at the bottom a little bit more money, but no one else has to consider like their position. Um, and it's much more structural than that. And it also, it kind of ignores the fact that, you know, the, what's happened in the workplace is that the wage share has gone down and the profit share has gone up. You know, why has that happened? And that's contributed to inequality and to poverty as well. Those are both things are tied together. We shouldn't just talk about one thing. Um, and I think, I think there is something to be said about the inequality narrative and how people are starting to really buy into that. Um, you know, we saw it whether it was popular, popularized through the Occupy movement with the 1% and more recently um, through Bernie and Corbyn and various different movements that are saying like actually there's something just not right about this and whether it's ca captured in incredible like disgusting outcomes like Grenfell or um, you know in our in our own workplaces people recognize that those dynamics are not right and so it's not just about income it is about power too okay. and a voice bring three points because then I can we can say there was a Q&A even there wasn't really um, so we'll have one here uh, and then two more people asking brief questions you'll have one minute each to answer okay sorry um, I'm Sam. To, to both of you, if, if I may, uh, two quick things. First is around the mobility angle, which uh, I, I kind of agree with Matthew, if I may. So if you talk about social mobility going upwards, we do have to address the downward side. I think you've sort of touched upon it a little bit, uh, Richard. But if you don't address that, you're in this sort of mathematical improbability. Um, and I hear what you're saying, Pfizer, in terms of there is more people in the nine to five than there is in the five. But if the people in the in the five have the seventy-five, you're struggling. Um, the, the second point I don't think was really addressed is the, the problem of technology and globalization, um, both of which are aggressively going to eat into any argument we kind of make, whether it's sort of uh, basis erosion, profit shifting, etc. So. Um, we're going to have to really deal with that. I don't know if who wants to deal with one or both of those points. Any other questions? Or are we satisfied that? Oh, yes. Very good. Thank you. Should I ask it now before you answer that question? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm Michael. So my, my question comment uh, is for Richard. I, th I feel like many of the plots that you had up that show when you ask people what kind of mobility they want to see. It, to me, it's not surprising that the top 20% don't want to move down to the top 40% or anything like that. But I don't think that's necessarily a fair representation of the issue because if, I'm, if I make X amount and people are moving up around me but I'm continuing to make X amount and be very comfortable in my life, then that's mobility in a sense but not, not a blunt question of, do you want to move down in terms of where you stand percentile-wise with your income? And so my question is, I guess, how else can you define mobility so that you're not making people feel like they're something is being taken from them, but rather other people are getting more? Yeah. I can't see another hand, so we'll, yes, yes, right, oh, oh. oh. No, you're very kind. Thank you. Yeah, I bet it was a brilliant question as well, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. Um, I think it's a very interesting 
So I'm going to leave a final word to you. So you, you'll have a minute to talk about globalisation and technology. Okay. Uh, oh, sure, I think it's fine. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, and Richard, you've got two minutes to respond to those questions because they're mainly directed to you. Right. So I will probably do uh, the other one. I think the I think Sam's point overlaps with Michael's about downward mobility, but also speaks about power. And I think one of the biggest differences between us, which might reflect philosophical differences, where we are, is uh, you said very well, Pfizer. People take have power taken from them; they don't give it away. Um, my, my bet in the book is that only if people are willing to give up some power, there is some self-reflection, can you create a political movement where that will happen. If I honestly saw a, a, a world where I thought the 80% were going to get organized enough in the US to make any of this happen, then I would have written a different book. Um, but it seems to me, at least specifically in the US context, is that actually political change has very often been driven by exactly those kinds of just a willingness to recognize that there needs to be something to give. I may be completely wrong about that, but I think that, that basic difference between us explains a lot. I think everything, uh, Michael's point is, look, you know, everything is relative. And so, look, I want more growth. I want more. Can I just, I'm just, I'm just sure. for a second. You've gone around. You've talked about your book to a lot of places, a lot of people. Yes. How many people in the top 20% have kind of looked you in the eye and said, you know, you've changed my view? And I'm, 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 I'm genuinely interested. Yeah. I'm, it's not a, not a facile question, a, a, a flippant question. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't assume it was. Um, some is the honest answer, some. Um, but it will be around these, like, you take these pain point issues, like school inclusion or how you voted on zoning. So you get these incredibly liberal areas where when it comes to their zoning and whether there'll be more low-income housing in there, their liberalism suddenly goes out the window. And what, uh, when it comes to playing a legacy admissions card, when it comes to stitching up an internship. Now, you can see these things are trivial against the vast inequalities that we see. And that's a perfectly reasonable criticism. My view is, if people aren't willing to stop doing that, if people aren't willing to stop doing the most egregious, in, egregiously inegalitarian things, and they still justify it over the dinner table to themselves. They find a moral calculus that allows them to. There is no chance for the kind of sweeping redistribution that Pfizer wants. None whatsoever. Um, that's a difference of opinion between us. If the 80% come take it, then we don't need it. That's fine. And I think the only thing I'll just briefly on the IQ thing, because I think that's very relevant, obviously very relevant in Young. Um, the IQ plus, IQ plus effort is what defines merit in his meritocracy. I get a lot of critique about that. It's big in the, on the right in the US now as well. Um, uh, particularly around assortative mating, which also Young predicted, et cetera. Um, my view about that is, look, if, it, if you look at the evidence for what happens to kids, to, even to the extent you can measure it properly, the developmental environment within which they grow up seems to massively overwhelm the innate IQ to me, to my view, which is, it's silly to say there's nothing going on with IQ, but it's sillier to say that it's the main thing. And by the way, if it really is, then we'll have massive redistribution on luck egalitarian grounds because no one deserves their IQ. And so the luck egalitarians have it at that point, and we should just redistribute all the extra money they get from, from uh, luck, if that's true. If you, if so you, if you, if you, you look on Feinstein's work, you can find that small gaps in attainment really very early ages grow and And it's grow the same in the US. One minute, it's Toby, Toby Young, Michael Young's uh, son, who is not a fan of his father's work. Uh, wrote something very interesting recently about the fact that we're going to be able to start choosing our embryos on the basis of some measure of their IQ, right? Say that's true. And his view is that 
what's going to happen is that rich people will be able to use that technology to buy themselves even smarter kids and then raise them, of course, even more aggressively. Young's proposal is, given that technology is coming anyway, why don't we say that only poor people are allowed to use it? specifically prohibit rich people from being able to choose their children and allow the poor to do it. I just put it out there as the kind of idea that shows that the young family continue to uh, challenge us. Uh, just so you've got, but the, the, I guess the point about globalization technology is this. Isn't the danger that whatever we do here, you know, however we ch change taxes, benefit systems, give up austerity, all of that kind of stuff, that actually it is the massive forces of globalization and technology which are going to determine the life chances of poor people in the future? Uh, so I think one of the ways in which this story, again, this, very, this narrative of like we can't have things any different and, you know, shrug our shoulders, this is how it is, is that we constantly look at, to globalisation and technological change as the main reasons that inequality has gone up in this country. Actually, one of the main re reasons, and don't just, I'm not just lefties like me, it's the OECD, it's research by the IMF that shows this, is because there's less trade union power. Because workers just have less rights, less voice, less power. I mean, it's just like, I mean, it, so, so if we want to think about the way, so we had um, an almost similar level of inequality as the Netherlands in, the 1979, in 1979. We then had an exponential increase according to the Gini coefficient, and they had, they basically got the same levels of inequality, a slight increase. They've been, they've had the same global forces, and what's the difference been? Mitigating factors in that country. And one of the things is to make sure that people can still get the fair share of their pie, and they have to be, have power in that situation. So I think this is such a critical time to get these structures right, and also it's incredibly patronizing to the working class to act like that has to come from the top. People have voice, and we saw that with Grenfell. They are trying, they know how to organize, they, they have something to say. People aren't listening, that's a big problem. Okay, well, uh, copies of this uh, very readable, very informative, uh, and rather shiny book uh, are available outside, and Richard will sign them uh, for you if you, uh, uh, if you get them. Um, uh, thank you all for coming. Just I wanted one thing I want to share with you. Whenever I see the word internship, I just want to tell you all, because people don't realize this, unpaid internships are illegal. So we talk in this country about how we should crack down on them. They are illegal. If you have an intern you should be paying the national living wage. And if you're not, then you will be named and shamed in due course when HMRC gets round to it. So I'm just telling you that, <laughs> in case you're not aware of it, because you ought to be aware of it. Um, uh, thank you all for coming, but can I ask you to join me in thanking our wonderful speakers. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.